Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Bea Spiller, who recently joined RFF as a fellow and the director of our transportation program. She's also a board member at the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists. In today's episode, I'll ask Bea to tell us about her research with community organizations working in New York City schools to measure, analyze, and reduce exposure to air pollution for students in the Bronx. The work is unfolding now, and Bea will help us understand the historical context and current policy setting around air pollution exposure in New York City. We'll also talk about how this type of community-engaged research not only produces new knowledge and informs policymaking, but how it also benefits communities that are engaged in the research. Stay with us. Bea Spiller, our new colleague here at RFF, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. So Bea, it's um it's great to have you with us here at RFF. We're going to talk about some ongoing research that you are working on right now in today's episode. But first, uh, because you're new to the organization and you're new to the podcast, uh, we would love to know how you became interested in working on environmental issues, either at a young age or maybe later in life. Yeah, well, it was definitely inspired by my youth. I spent many years in California uh, when I was a kid, and my parents would take me hiking in the forests, up in the mountains, and I would go backpacking around the Southwest. And I really became sort of one with nature and really loved being part of the natural world. And so I, I knew I wanted to dedicate myself to some sort of environmental studies. Uh, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a marine biologist. So as soon as I joined uh, college, I signed up as a major in the biology major. Um, but then shortly thereafter, found out I was going to have to dissect animals. <laughs> and so I said, uh, that's not for me. I was looking to see what else I could I could major in and found environmental policy and figured, you know, that was one way for me to continue to help the environment but not have to dissect any animals. So that's how I uh, ended up on this path. That's great. So no one has shown you the dissecting room yet at RFF? <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe maybe you get that tour after one year uh, at RFF. So, um, all right, Bea, uh, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation because um, you're going to help us learn about uh, issues related to environmental justice and the transportation system. Um, and we've talked a lot about environmental justice issues, including about transportation in the United States and how disproportionate impacts often fall on low-income communities and communities of color. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the specific issue that you're addressing in this uh, research project and what the motivation is for doing the analysis in the first place? Sure. So overall, the objective of this project is to estimate the effect of traffic pollution on indoor air quality in New York City schools and understand how that influx of transportation pollution into the schools affects educational outcomes. And there's two specific inequities uh, that we want to explore here. So the first inequity has to do with the placement of transportation infrastructure. And perhaps this is something that you've covered in the podcast before, but across the country, you know, communities of color are more likely to live near highways and freeways due to racist policies that specifically cited uh, this infrastructure throughout or across these communities. 
And in New York City, this is really true. So if you look at a map of New York City, we see major freeways running through the Bronx and in Brooklyn, particularly through, directly through communities of color. So there's this inequitable impact in terms of exposure to transportation pollution. And the second inequity that we're exploring here has to do with the ability for communities to invest in defensive behaviors that can help protect them from exposure to that pollution. And this would be things such as HEPA filters in HVAC systems. And so these two inequities interact in this really interesting way in New York City. So what we see, right, that, as I mentioned, the freeways are going through the Bronx and the Brooklyn, you would expect there to be a lot more pollution in these neighborhoods. But actually, if you look at pollution maps, we see that the majority of the pollution is located in Manhattan. However, when we look at the health impacts that are typically associated with exposure to pollution, such as asthma, the worst outcomes are in the Bronx. So how do we explain this, right? When we have these major freeways running through the Bronx, we have these major asthma concentrations that are really high levels, you know, compared to anywhere else in the country. And so there might be a couple different ways that we could explain this. One would be a potentially a sort of a scientific way, right? Which is that perhaps pollution coming from highways is sort of different than pollution that's coming from just road traffic because of the types of vehicles that are on those roads, right? With the long haul vehicles and perhaps they have you know, more black carbon emissions or other types of pollutants that could cause asthma. But another way that we can think about this, explain it, could be defensive mechanisms, right? In that richer, whiter neighborhoods who are like located in Manhattan, uh, they might be more able to access these defensive mechanisms and so protect themselves more. So what we wanna understand is, you know, not just how exposure to transportation pollution affects the educational outcomes, but also how the ability to protect oneself from that exposure and protect children from this exposure through investments in building infrastructure sort of differs across community groups. And I think this is really important because there's a ton of research, both in the epidemiological and in the economics space, showing that you know, when you're exposed to pollution as a child, it can have long-lasting impacts on your health and well-being. Um, and we're talking further into your future, so reduced wages in the future, you know, reduced ability to accumulate wealth and, and, and human capital. So if we really care about you know, intergenerational equity and sort of changing the tide of wealth and equities across race and ethnicity, then we need to be exploring these types of issues and interactions. Yeah. That's so interesting about the um, you know differential in, in asthma outcomes despite the the traffic patterns. Um, can you tell us how this research project came about? And also, I know you're working with a variety of partners uh, on this project. So, who are the partners that you're working with? Yeah. So this project was a long time coming. Um, I had been having conversations with a professor from Fordham. His name is Mark Conte. Mark and I had been talking for at least a couple years, trying to come up with some sort of research project around air pollution or air monitoring, but nothing was really panning out. And then one day, Mark goes to a rally, uh, a climate rally for, for New York, and meets a community organizer whose name was Victor Davila. And Victor works at The Point CDC. He's a community organizer at The Point, which is a local community-based organization located in Hunts Point in the Bronx. 
so Mark and Victor have this nice conversation where Mark's kind of telling him a little bit about his interest in air pollution monitoring, and Victor sort of graciously suggests, like, you know, be interested in working together. So Mark comes back to me, and, and we're having lunch one day, and he tells me, like, oh, I met this great guy, Victor. Um, why don't we come to him with some of our ideas? And I said, well, let's have a call with Victor. Let's ask him what is he most concerned about? What are the major concerns within the community? And try to understand you know, where our research could fit into these concerns and, and begin to help him with this you know, through our actual research. So we have a call with Victor. Great conversation. Victor's telling us, look, we're just really concerned about traffic pollution in the Bronx. Uh, and another thing that he was really concerned about was indoor air quality in schools. So we, we're hearing both of these things, and we're like, maybe there's something to be done about traffic pollution affecting indoor air quality in schools. Um, and so Mark and I huddle. And during this time, Mark had actually met a physicist uh, from Fordham named Stephen Holler. And Stephen had been going around to schools in New York City conducting this sort of STEM, STEM education uh, for, for kids. And what he would do, he would go to schools and he would install air quality monitors in the schools, inside and outside. And you would work with the students to build their own air quality monitors and, and sort of help them understand what's the importance of monitoring there. So we thought, well, why don't we expand on what Steve's doing and install a bunch of paired indoor-outdoor air quality monitors across schools in the city and to be able to identify that effect of transportation pollution on indoor air quality. So we come up with this idea and we come back to Victor. Victor loves the idea. And he says, why don't we bring other organizations into the fold? And he suggests two organizations. Uh, the first one is Triage, which is a youth-led uh, group in, in uh, New York City that works with schools on environmental education. So they had this access to schools, which could be really useful for the, for the work that we wanted to do. And the second organization that Victor suggests is the New York Civil Liberties Union. So the NYCLU had actually been working a lot on the issue associated with transportation pollution impacts on schools. And so then, you know, the project was formed uh, and the partners were, were chosen. Everybody came together. You know, we decided this was a really great idea and we moved forward from there. Hmm. That's so interesting. And, um, and I do want to ask you more about uh, that partnership in, in a few minutes. But, but first, you know, kind of a uh, in-the-weeds question for researchers, you know, in the world of environmental economics uh, in, in many fields, subfields of economics, um, you know, there's a history of researchers often focusing on existing data sets rather than sort of partnering with local organizations and going out and gathering original data and, you know, focusing specifically on local community concerns from your perspective uh, and also from researchers who, who you've spoken with who carry out similar work in the environmental economics field. Um, what's your sense of the motivation for engaging with partners in this way? What are some of the benefits that you see from it? And um, do you see it as a trend that is growing in the field of environmental economics or whether it's kind of static or shrinking or how do you characterize it? Well, to answer your final question first, I do think that this is a trend that is growing and I'm very excited to see that it is growing. And I, and I hope that more academics will choose to do this uh, as, as we move forward and understand more about the importance of working with communities. You know, the reason why I think it's so important to work with communities is that I just don't think academics 
are the correct individuals to know exactly what the worst problems facing a community are, right? We're sitting in a, com in a different location. We don't have our pulse, you know, our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the community. And especially from environmental economics sort of approach to study, the way that we've been trained, you know, as you mentioned with data, the way we've been trained to approach problems is to think of a policy, either one that's been implemented or is planning on being implemented. And then we analyze it to see, you know, was it cost effective? Did it have the right environmental outcomes that we were expecting that policy to have? And then many times to give credit to the researchers, we do ask the question of, are there distributional impacts? You know, how do these benefits vary across space and across community? But what that means that this issue of distributional impacts of the environmental justice angle of our work is usually just a, sort of a tack on to the work. And, and you know, what ends up happening is that many times the policy solution that the research tells us is the right one may not be the right one for the community. And so I've seen this a lot of times where researchers might be saying, oh, we did this analysis. Hey, community, this is really good for you. And but yet the communities are up in arms against this policy. So like, why is there this clash, right? When we're saying we know <laughs> that this policy is good for you, but you're not liking it. And I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on here uh, from the researcher's perspective. And so what this means is that when we begin to work with a community-based group, it helps us revisit the way that we're asking the question. So it allows us to formulate the question in a way that could potentially have real actionable outcomes for the community and do so with an understanding of where the community is currently at, right? What I've seen in terms of you know, other people talking about this, I've heard a lot that communities have really felt burned by researchers coming in, analyzing the community, identifying a problem, and then leaving. And the community is sort of left holding the bag with nothing to show for it, right? And so when we work with the communities, we can not only develop questions that are useful for the community, but the research itself can build something for the community that lasts above and beyond when the researcher actually leaves. And so this specific project that we're doing, I think this is a good example of one because what it does is, you know, it allows community members to collaborate with, you know, reputable academic institutions to collect data that's causal, right? That they can have real scientific trust in, but also they can trust in it because they were involved in the data gathering process. And so, you know, once our project is done, these community groups are going to have air quality monitors. They're going to have this data that they can use for their own purposes to help them, you know, advocate for themselves and can give them tools that they need, you know, above and beyond once we actually leave. So I think that's the motivation for, for sort of working with these community groups because in the end it can just have better outcomes for the community. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I agree. It, it does seem to be a trend that's, that's growing in the field and, um, you know, other researchers at RFF and, and other academic institutions that we work with are certainly seeing more engagement with communities, which is um, which is really exciting. So, um, 
Let's talk a little bit about the study itself that you're going to be carrying out with your partners. You mentioned um, that you know air quality monitors are going to be involved. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're going to be gathering the data for this analysis and what you've learned so far as you are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you are sort of getting ready to install the equipment in the schools. That's correct. Um, so we received a very generous grant from Environmental Defense Fund to purchase air quality monitors and install them in schools beginning this summer. And we expect the installation process to continue through the end of the year. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be installing in 45 schools across the city, one indoor air quality monitor and one outdoor air quality monitor. Um, and so this will be able to tell us, you know, given the proximity of the school to traffic, uh, you know, how, how that traffic pollution is affecting both outdoor and indoor air quality. Um, and to be able to understand how the relationship between outdoor and indoor air quality is affected by building characteristics, we're going to be conducting building surveys. So we're going to ask questions like, you know, um, do these schools have windows that open? Do they have weatherization? Do they have central HVAC system? Do they have HEPA filters? And so on and so forth. Um, and then another really key piece of data that we're going to be collecting is information on wind direction. So what we're going to be doing is installing a weather monitor, a weather station right outside the school. What the weather station is going to be able to tell us is which way the wind is blowing. Because this is how we're going to be able to ensure causality. Because you could imagine, imagine a freeway where you have two schools within you know, 500 feet of that freeway, but one is upwind of the freeway and one is downwind. The school that's downwind is going to be affected much more by the transportation pollution caused by the freeway than the school that's upwind. But if we didn't know which school was upwind and which one was downwind, we wouldn't be able to assign that transportation pollution in a causal manner. And so by installing the weather stations, we'll be able to achieve causality. Um, and, and yeah, as I mentioned, right, we still are in the process of buying the monitors and, you know, sort of planning how we're going to go into these schools. Uh, but, you know, what one of the things I wanted to mention that I've learned so far, which <laughs> was, was surprising because I think at first Mark and I thought, oh, it'll be sort of easy peasy. We'll just go into schools and put in the monitors. But there's a lot of, of issues that comes with that. And there's two important issues that come with installing these monitors in school. The first one is actually data privacy issues, and the other one is Wi-Fi connectivity. So on the data privacy issues, you know, uh, New York City high schools are actually competitive in that they have to attract students. So there's a possibility that schools might not want these data about you know, what's the indoor air quality, what's the outdoor air quality right outside the school to be made publicly available. Because if a school potentially had some bad indoor air quality, they wouldn't want that to affect who chooses to go to the school. And so to be able to maintain that data privacy, um, we decided to move towards a different type of monitor that collects the data automatically. So these are purple air monitors, which are these really user-friendly monitors that generally post the data immediately online. So if you go to purpleair.com, you can see the location of the monitors. You can see what air pollution level is at each monitor, like right now. Um, but, you know, actually, they do come with this little incorporated USB chip so we can have the data stored locally on the monitor 
such that the data are, are private uh, and not you know, accessible to public immediately. And also the Wi-Fi connectivity uh, is an issue. That's something I wasn't, you know, I didn't have fully, I wasn't fully aware of, but this is something that Victor, our partner at The Point, has been working on a lot, is trying to get broadband connectivity to his community. A lot of these schools, you don't have Wi-Fi or maybe don't have really good access, really strong access to Wi-Fi. And so that made it another challenge with using the purple air monitors sort of, would have to have Wi-Fi connectivity to be able to post the data online. So by shifting to this, you know, hard, uh, this different type of monitor that can that can store the data locally, um, that that dealt with those two concerns. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. And honestly, like I'm a little shocked that there are a substantial number of schools in New York City that don't have Wi-Fi. Yeah, or they have pretty shoddy Wi-Fi that, you know, is, is really inconsistent. And you would need to have very strong sort of consistent Wi-Fi for the data to not be very spotty. Right, right. Well, wow, really interesting. Um, so, you know, a couple more questions um, before we go to our top of the stack segment. One of them kind of goes back to this question of engaging with community members and community-based organizations in research. What are some of the most um, interesting ways in which you know this type of research project that is community engaged differs from research that is not community engaged, whether it's from the sort of designing the research process or whether it's implementing the research process or maybe for policy implications or you know impacts on the ground. You've already touched on a couple of them, but I'm hoping you can expand a little bit. Yeah, so I think one of the ways, and, and I think I touched on this earlier, is the fact that communities can benefit from the research and what is provided to them from this, you know, working with the data, gathering the data, having access to it that, that they can use to, to um, advocate for themselves. So communities can definitely benefit from the research and, and the results that will come out of this research are much more likely to be beneficial uh, to the community. And again, like the solutions that are coming out, right? Because the project and the research was developed, co-developed with the communities, that means that the solutions that emerge are you know, much less likely to be top-down. And I think this is one of the things that you know, economists tend to be criticized for is that we, we do a lot, we tend to be a little condescending. Like, you know, we know what's good for you. We have these solutions. This is what's best for you. And that's, that's a really problematic approach to take to policymaking. Um, and, and rather, you know, if, if we're working with the communities, the solutions can be a lot more collaborative and much less sort of top-down in a way that, that the community feels heard and, and will work for the community. And I think the final point that I want to mention is a benefit to the researcher because the researcher learns a lot from working with these communities and with these community groups. And these learnings, these understandings, and frankly, the empathy that it can foster um, is something that would stay with the researcher above and beyond the finalization of this project. And, you know, for communities, the communities that we're working with, this work is really, it's personal, right? This is affecting them directly. It's affecting their day-to-day. -day. It's not like, you know, it's an academic sitting in, his ivory in her ivory tower saying, you know, oh, this is a, an issue that affects them. Rather, it's an issue that affects me. And that personalization, I think, is something that 
does, again, like foster this type of empathy, right? So for example, I went with Victor to a, um, a public you know, hearing and he stood up to talk about why we need uh, climate policy in New York. And the first thing he said was, I have asthma. I live in the Bronx, I have asthma because of the pollution, right? So for him, it's, it's really, really personal. And I wanted to read to you uh, just a sh very short quote that, I, that Victor sent me that demonstrates kind of this sensation. And he, he writes, infrastructure is a language. Infrastructure can communicate what we think about a culture and what we believe a community deserves. The city of New York has been saying for decades that the residents of the South Bronx are uncared for and unwanted through its infrastructure. In the neighborhood where I grew up, the term environmental justice was literally coined. So for him, the fact that these freeways are going through the middle of his community is a personal issue. And, and it's made so real by his day-to-day -day struggles with asthma. So when we're working with people for whom this really, really matters and this affects them day to day, it gives such a different sensation to the work and it gives it a different meaning and importance, I think, to the researcher and to the work product. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that anymore. And, and you've stated it so nicely. I mean, my, my own research experience in a very different context, but, um, you know, researching the impacts of oil and gas development on local communities. Uh, had I only read journal articles and books about what that was like, I would have had a very different picture from uh, what I actually have, which is based on reading journal articles and books, but also spending a lot of time in communities, meeting people, talking to people, getting a feel for places and, and a feel for what is important to people. Um, so that resonates with me really strongly as well. So um, I think this will be our last question before we go to our top of the stack. And it's a policy question, normally on Resources Radio, we talk mostly about policy. Today, we've been talking a lot about research, which is great. But I do want to touch on policy. And as you know really well, Bayad, New York is taking environmental justice issues quite seriously through a variety of pieces of legislation. Can you help us understand the most relevant pieces of law that the state uh, is implementing or maybe considering implementing that are seeking to address the types of environmental justice issues that you are looking at or that are related to the topics that you're looking at? Yeah, so there's there's three really relevant pieces of legislation. The first one is the Environmental Rights Amendment, which uh, was passed, I think, recently and states that everyone has a right to clean air. And I think that's one of the really key things, right? If everyone has a right to clean air, if we're demonstrating that some people do not because of proximity to, to traffic or because of this lack of defensive mechanism, it's a way that this work can help build upon it. Another legislation is the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which is a massive climate legislation at the New York State level that, you know, the goal is to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, but specifically provides funding that's dedicated to disadvantaged communities. So 35% of the benefits of, of clean energy funding need to go to these communities. And it also creates new air quality monitoring requirements. So I think this is another way in which, you know, the work that I'm doing sort of fits into ongoing legislation. But there is one piece of legislation that is just like spot on the money, uh, and that's the SCI Act. And the SCI Act is, is the Schools Impacted by Gross Highways Act. So this SCI Act, it prohibits building schools near major roadways and freeways. Um, the SCI Act has, has 
passed legislation, but I think it's still being, um, you know, it's still in, in the Senate, or there, there's still some final step that it needs to go through to become codified. Um, and this, this act, you know, besides just preventing the building of schools within 600 feet of major roadways, it also tries in a way to prevent roadways from being built by existing schools by requiring the developers to include in their environmental impact statement the location of nearby schools. And finally, it funds retrofits for schools that are within 600 feet of major roadways. And so our research could not just help identify which retrofits would be most valuable, but can also show the benefit of identifying downwind schools with which to target first with, with these funds. Yeah, that's so interesting. And um, it'll be really, really interesting to see if that gets passed and if so, how it ends up being implemented and, and of course, incorporating good evidence and data to do that implementation. I should just note, RFF is actually working with New York State on uh, developing some metrics for implementing the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. That, that work is being led by Alan Krupnik here at RFF and involves a variety of researchers. So keep an eye out for uh, for more on that from the RFF end. Um, but thank you, Bea, so much for that for that lay of the land. I know we just kind of breezed through the policy issues, and there's a lot more to talk about there, but we'll have to wait for another another episode. Um, let's go now to our top of the stack segment, where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that you think is really great uh, and that you think our listeners would enjoy. So, Bea, uh, what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Well, it's, it might sound a little out of left field, but um, I actually watched the other day Prehistoric Planet. It's a TV show on Apple TV that shows basically what the world looked like pre-humans, like during the dinosaur era. So it follows different dinosaurs, it, it shows them. I don't know the kind of CGI that they use to do this, but it literally looks like you're watching a nature show. It's, you know, uh, with Dave Attenborough. It's, it's really amazing um, just in terms of, for, for actually for a few reasons, right? First of all, it really makes you think about like how much humans have altered the world because it's not just about the dinosaurs. They show landscapes and, and it really does make you think about like the effect that we have as human beings on our natural world. But the other reason why I loved it so much was that to be able to create this show that shows, you know, the Tyrannosaurus rexes, they mating, they're swimming, they're, you know, uh, different types of way that they interact with each other. How do they know this? Well, all of this is based on so many years of scientific understanding and knowledge that the anthropologists have, have come up with. So they take all of this scientific knowledge and collapse it into this really entertaining you know, TV show. So like, how can we bring STEM education to the broad public? I think this is a really great way of doing that. And, you know, as I was watching it, I felt like a kid again, you know, the kid with my fossils as I had when I was a kid and like thinking about the prehistoric times, you know, what would life be like back then? So anyways, I just thought that was a really fascinating show and highly recommend it. Yeah, that looks fantastic. I um I had also heard about that show but haven't watched it yet. And I now with your recommendation, I, I'm definitely gonna put it on the list. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I'll start watching it tonight. I did actually go see the new Jurassic Park movie a couple of weeks ago, but I feel like that had a slightly different level of scientific <laughs> rigor 
I'll have to go watch that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just in it for the Jeff Goldblum. But um, <laughs> anyway, that that's a great recommendation, Bea. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming on the show and uh, you know telling us about this fascinating work you're doing. Uh, about air pollution in schools in the Bronx. It seems like such an important issue, and uh, it's really great to have you at RFF working on it and being a colleague of uh, of myself and, and all of us here at RFF. So thank you again for coming onto the show. Thank you so much, Daniel. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you inviting me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.